Thank you for listening to the Restoration City Church Podcast. For more information about our church or to support us financially, please visit rcc.church. There is a phrase in the book of Genesis, this ancient book that is written thousands and thousands of years ago, that I think describes modern life incredibly well. Um, You go to Genesis chapter 4 and realize that humanity started to fall apart pretty drastically after the fall. After Adam and Eve rebel, we make it one generation before we find one brother rising up to kill another in a fit of jealous rage. And as God comes and speaks to Cain, um, he says this. He says, so now you are cursed. You're alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. You will be, and here's the phrase, a restless wanderer on the earth. And of all of the things that God says, this idea of being a restless wanderer seems to lodge itself in Cain's heart and in his mind because he repeats the phrase back to God to Verses later, he says, this is too much. I'm not going to be able to bear this. You've condemned me to be a restless wanderer. Even if that is new language, it is not a new thought. How many of us live our lives feeling like something of a restless wanderer? Um, And if that's you, that probably means that you are human, not that you are somehow deficient as a Christian. Um, You're not the only one in the room that feels that way. Um, And even if you were the only one in the room that feels that way, uh, you can take comfort in the fact that if you were having dinner with Bono, he would understand what you're talking about. Uh, For those of you that didn't have the privilege of being Bono is a musician. Um, He was this little band called U2, and it was now decades ago, probably before some of you were born, that he wrote a song called I I still haven't found what I'm looking for, which is in many ways a meditation on the Christian life. He writes this, you broke the bond. Oh, my shame. You know I believe it, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And I just wonder how often we find ourselves there where we would say the exact same thing. You know I believe it but I'm still this restless wanderer. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I think there is something inside of all of us that feels this deep longing for God, but we feel this deep longing for something new, something different, something fresh, something pure in our relationship with that God. We feel this desire for a life that actually feels like we are following the God who promised to give life and to give it abundantly. Where that doesn't seem like strange aspirational language in John's gospel, but we're like, yes, I taste and see a little bit of that. Yet, despite that desire, or maybe because of that desire, we are restless 
And we spend so much of our life wandering around looking for something that will satisfy the restlessness of our souls. And interestingly enough, and maybe not all that surprisingly, in the middle of a chapter that is all about the relationships between men and women, it's a chapter that's about singleness and marriage and sex and divorce and our bodies and all of these things, Paul almost takes a breath to talk directly to restless wanderers. And his message is extraordinarily simple, yet extraordinarily challenging for each of us. He wants us to know that spiritual restlessness, this I still haven't found what I'm looking for sensation that we're familiar with, it's never going to be satisfied by changing our circumstances, only by deepening our relationship with God. And that is extremely easy to grab hold of with our minds. It is profoundly difficult to grab hold of with our hearts. But one of the things that Paul wants the Corinthians to understand, I think one of the things that God would want us to understand, is that there is limited spiritual value in changing the external circumstances of our lives, right? Sometimes when you look at a passage of Scripture and you're trying to figure out what the main point of the text is, the Bible goes out of its way to make it easy just through simple repetition. There might have been a couple of things that stood out as Emily was reading our passage for the day, but if I read you a couple of quick verses, you will instantaneously see the thread that holds this passage together. Verse 17, let each one live his life in the situation the Lord assigned when he called him. Verse 20, let each of you remain in the situation in which he was called. Verse 24, brothers and sisters, each person is to remain with God in the situation, in decision, if you can say it this way, to err on the side of advising the Corinthians to stay in whatever their current circumstances are. Now, Obviously, Paul does not mean you're never going to make changes in your life. It is, after all, a passage about singleness and marriage, and Paul is operating with this assumption that many, certainly not all, but many will navigate that rather significant change in circumstances and go from being a single follower of Jesus to a married follower of Jesus. He's going to say in verse 21 that if you are a slave and you have the opportunity to become free by all means, you should take it. So Paul is not at all saying, look, you should never change the circumstances of your life. I became a follower of Jesus the second semester of my junior year of college, a full-time student, no income, and completely, utterly, and totally single. Um, Over the years, all of those different things have morphed and changed, and they have been good changes. Yet, Paul is saying, look, this restlessness inside of us, the thing that we're tempted to do when we feel it is to start messing around with the external circumstances of our lives. We do it countless different ways, right? We all have our own version. Right, you could think of 
people that you're like, right, maybe that's why he cycles through a new girlfriend every six or seven months because he's constantly looking for the one that's going to satisfy his soul, yet missing the fact that she's never going to be able to do it. Some of us do it with careers. Some of us do it with jobs. Some of us are moving city to city to city, church to church to church, apartment building to apartment building to apartment building, neighborhood to neighborhood to neighborhood, car to car to car, iPhone to iPhone to iPhone to iPhone, thinking if I could just have this one thing, then finally there will be peace in my heart. And Paul is saying, come on, guys, you know that doesn't work. You know you don't want to spend all of life just tweaking different dials that never touch the core of who we are. Right? And, and when I say that, that that just makes sense. That even though um, we forget it, even though every time Apple launches a new phone, we're like, yes, I need it, we know that that's not really going to touch the depths of our soul. Paul almost sees that coming and decides to take deliberate aim at what we might call the big three circumstances that tend to dislodge us in our relationship with God, right? The places that we tend to look at and say, wait a minute, this might be the exception. This might be a disqualifier. Like, I get it, John. I'm not looking to satisfy the ache of my soul through an eye. I'm trying to satisfy the ache of my soul through relationships, I am trying to satisfy the ache of my soul somehow by tweaking my ethnic cultural identity. I am somehow trying to satisfy the ache of my soul by changing my socioeconomic circumstances. And we're going to take each one of those in turn because Paul spends a lot of his time trying to convince the Corinthians that even when it comes to those big three, the answer to what we are looking for is to figure out how to remain with God in our current circumstances, right? Um, Verse 24, brothers and sisters, each person is to remain with God in the situation in which he was called, right? Not just to live your life, not just to remain in that situation, but to remain with God, to put down deep relational roots with the triune God of heaven, so much so that we are able to draw life from Him the same way that a grape would draw life from a vine, the same way that a branch would draw life from a vine, that we draw life from God regardless of what circumstances we find ourselves in, which makes sense right? It makes sense going all the way back to Genesis, because if this spiritual restlessness enters the human condition as a result of separation from God, then obviously the answer to satisfying that ache is to reconnect with the presence of the one from whom we have been separated, right? That's the theological understanding of why upgrading your car isn't going to satisfy the ache of your soul. It's why one vacation after another, great, go on a vacation because you can go on a vacation because it's sunny, go on a vacation because you're tired, go on vacation, change the circumstances of your life, just don't think that it's going to satisfy the longing of your soul, right? I want to follow Paul for a minute, though, 
and say, are we willing to apply that to these big three? Because that seems to be where he wants to go, and he seems to think there is a need to do that. First of all, in terms of relationship status, we can do that one pretty quickly. Because that's really what he has been driving at all through 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He is trying to be saying, all right, listen, if you are single and you want to get married, totally understand. There's all kinds of reasons that you would feel that way. Just don't fall into the trap of thinking that you somehow need to become married to be more acceptable to God, to be more loved by God, to be more accepted by the church, to be more loved by the church. Don't do that. You can have an absolutely vibrant relationship with God as a single person. Go ask Mother Teresa, and you could absolutely have a stagnant relationship with God as a married person. You also can have a vibrant relationship with God as a married person and a stagnant relationship as a single person. Just don't fall into the trap of believing that somehow God would love you more if you were married, right? There's reasons that you desire to be married, but earning God's affection and approval is not one of them. Now, he decides to take that and expand it to say, hey, let's talk a little bit about cultural and ethnic identity, right? Seems like a bit of a tangent, but we're going to follow him for a minute and see if it doesn't connect. Was anyone already circumcised, this is verse 18, when he was called? He should not undo his circumcision. Was anyone called while circumcised? He should not get circumcised. Paul is not concerned so much about the details of the male anatomy as much as he is trying to find a way of saying, all right, look, some of you come from a Jewish background. You became a follower of Jesus as a Jewish person, and you are going to continue to live. You may choose to live in many different ways as a Jewish person. You want to celebrate Hanukkah? Go for it. You don't want to eat bacon? You don't have to. Like, it's okay. You decided to follow Jesus when you were Jewish. Go ahead. You can live out that cultural identity. Just know that you are following and worshiping the Messiah that God has promised from Genesis chapter 3 forward. And he's also saying, hey, some of y'all don't know a thing about Judaism. You're as Gentile as they come. You've eaten bacon your whole life. You've never been in a temple. You've always thought this whole sacrificing of animals and blood of bulls and all this stuff was just total, complete, utter cultish nonsense. You wanted nothing to do with it. Don't let anybody tell you that you need to adopt Jewish customs, traditions, and ways of life to somehow be acceptable to God. Now, we hear that and we're like, right, I know that, sort of New Testament, I get it. And my guess is very few of us in the room are wrestling with the pressure to either live as if you were Jewish or the pressure to live as if you were Gentile. But oftentimes, as followers of Jesus, we feel other more subtle forms of pressure. That it wasn't somehow enough for us to become a follower who somehow needed to learn to live and act and think like a middle-class white person, right? It wasn't enough for us just to follow Jesus, but we had to make sure we had the culturally approved cable news outlet. 
It wasn't enough for us just to follow Jesus. We had to align with a certain political party or we weren't really going to fit in and maybe we were somehow going to be less acceptable to God. Somehow God might be disappointed with us. And we are endlessly creative at coming up with these little cultural wedge issues, right? What are you doing on October 31st, right? Are you celebrating Halloween, fall festival, or just praying for the salvation of all the screwed up costume people out there, right? Are you giving out candy or are you just going out to dinner so you don't have to deal with the whole situation, which was my move for a decade as a single guy. And it was so much simpler and easier. I just went out to dinner and was like, like, not worried about the whole thing. What about Santa? Um, you know, just a like, preview of coming attractions. Some of you are like, absolutely do not kill Christmas. And some of you are like, if this is that kind of church, get me out of here. Because um, I can't deal with that man. And I'm like, he is creepy. And the idea that a man is invading your home via a chimney on a global scale should be harder for children to believe. But whatever, do it your own way. It's okay. Send your kid to a public school. Send your kid to a private school. Homeschool your kid. Breastfeed them, bottle feed them, all of these other things that we get so amped up about and we get so good at sending off these cultural, oh, oh, well, that's different. Oh, that's not, oh, is that working for you? That's good, huh? Right here in my own little small group. Isn't that cute? Um, I can go back and post on Facebook and be like, I know somebody like you now. We feel this pull towards cultural conformity. If we would just all dress the same way, eat the same food, listen to the same music, you'd understand more of the Bono references at the least. But, you know, I'm a middle-aged white guy. I can't help it, right? You don't have to do that. The thing that's going to satisfy your soul is not switching from Twitter to threads or going from Facebook to Instagram. It's probably not even going to be dropping the whole thing. He's saying it's going to be following Jesus. Now, from there, he pivots and he's like, let's just do socioeconomic status while we're at it. But he decides to do socioeconomic status in probably the most uncomfortable uh, way possible. Verse 21, were you called while a slave? Don't let it concern you. But if you can become free, by all means, take the opportunity, right? Um, no surprise, this is one of the verses in Scripture uh, that was abused over the centuries for people to say, see, God obviously has no problem with slavery. In fact, this seems like it's the Apostle Paul saying like, hey, you're a slave? Eh, whatevs, no big deal, you'll be fine. You know, Jesus is with you and, you know, God bless. And we need to pause and be careful about that because a lot of times what people do with that argument is they're like, look, I get what Paul's saying. I'm a little uncomfortable with what Paul's saying, but I'm going to try to solve the problem by calling attention to the fact that slavery in the ancient Near East was different than slavery here in America. And that is 
a, a true statement, right? Um, slavery in ancient Greece was not as race-based as it was here in America, and it is true that people could enter into slavery voluntarily, and it is true that some slaves were able to achieve a measure of dignity, if not prominence, in the community. D.B. Martin is a scholar who's probably written the most helpful book about the way that the Bible thinks about slavery, and I think he accurately summarizes it when he says, it mattered less in ancient Greece that someone was a slave and more whose slave someone was. That, that's probably fair. There were people who absolutely would have treated their slaves well, and it might have even been a desirable situation in some ways, and there were people who were absolutely horrific. But, but do not think that that solves the problem because while everything I've said is probably true, it is also an incomplete and a distorted view of slavery in ancient Greece. First of all, basic human Christian ethics, we are all made in the image of God. Hey, that probably means that it's wrong for one image bearer to own another image bearer as property, right? That's the kind of question we could bring that back to the three-year-olds and RCC kids, and they're like, yeah, that's not right. Um, they are exactly right. There is something fundamentally wrong with it. But Paul is trusting the fact that at this point in 1 Corinthians 7, he has sufficiently pricked the conscience of the people who are reading his letter. Because he's been talking about marriage, he's been talking about all of these things, and it was absolutely true. In ancient Greece, if you were a slave, you were prohibited from being married. So, don't turn this into some kind of benign institution that actually might have been somewhat helpful. No. Moreover, in ancient Greece, this was pervasive wherever you went. It didn't matter what your situation was. Slaves were almost always used for the sexual gratification of their masters. That was just built in to the system. And Paul's been talking so much about sex within marriage and all of these things that he knows that by now there are many people in Corinth who are uncomfortable with where he's going because he is clearly not a fan of slavery. In fact, he believes, verse 21, the second half of the verse, that if you are somehow enslaved and there is any way that you can be free, whether you buy your way to freedom, your, your master releases you, your master decides to follow Jesus and releases you, you should take that, change your circumstances, and go after that with everything you have. Yet, he is saying, as much as I hope for the day that you are free, you do not need to change even that status to be loved by God, to be known by God, to have the triune God of heaven come close to you. And the shocker for everybody would have been, wait a minute, you believe in a God who values every single human on planet earth, even those who are temporarily owned by another? 
That this is not a God who just dwells with the affluent. This is not just a God who dwells with the socially mobile. This is not just a God who dwells with the successful and the influential. This is a God who would be willing to draw near to somebody who is living in homelessness, to somebody who is trapped in poverty, to somebody who is in the most desperate of situations. That's what the story is about. And saying, hey, it's possible to remain with God in whatever our circumstances are. One of the primary ways we remain with God is by obeying Him. Verse 19, circumcision does not matter, and uncircumcision does not matter. Probably one of the most shocking things that Paul wrote as a Jewish rabbi to say circumcision, one of the sort of two covenant symbols of Israel. He's like, yeah, it doesn't matter. Uncircumcision, that doesn't matter either. What matters? Keeping God's commands. How do you remain with God? It's not just this detached sense of emotional well-being. It's not just this detached sense of emotional connection. It is, yes, I love Him. Yes, I adore Him. I worship Him. I treasure Him. But I'm also going to obey Him. I'm also going to follow Him, right? Uh, I was taking the boys a couple of weeks ago to a place where was a big old crowd, and I was like, hey, guys, stick with me right? And, and they understood exactly what that meant. That meant, like, get close to dad, and as I turn, and, you know, you just follow me. That's Jesus's invitation to us. He's saying, hey, Restoration City Church, just stick with me. Get really close to me, and when I break right, you break right with me. When I break left, you break left with me. Follow, when I walk fast, you speed up. When I slow down, you slow down. When I stop, you stop. Just stick with me. And there are so many times where what we are looking for is a way to maintain this sense of spiritual and emotional connection with Jesus without actually following him. Because breaks left, it makes no sense to us. We're like, I don't understand where you're going. That doesn't look right. I don't get it, God. Why would you be asking me to do that? Common sense says we should go the opposite way. And Jesus is like, but we're going this way. I know, it doesn't make sense. I know, but I'm on a journey to teach you what it looks like to love your enemies, not just to cut off relationship with them. I'm trying to help you to show patience to family members that, yes, it would be infinitely easier just to cut out of your life. And he's like, but I'm doing something different, and it might be hard, and it might not always make sense but when I turn right, just come with me. Right? We know that. We know intuitively that kind of relationship with Jesus, where I'm walking with the Son of God, that is going to go so much further to answering the ache of our soul than changing any circumstance in our life. That is going to count more than a having a boyfriend, getting engaged, getting married, having kids, getting the kids out of the house, whatever we're holding on to is like, yeah, that's the moment. That's going to count more than going to school, going to grad school, getting the job, taking the promotion, transferring. That's going to count more than changing our neighborhood, changing our city, changing any other external of life. We get it. But here's the question, just as we kind of wrap up. If it makes so much sense, why is it so hard for us to do? In, in some ways, there's a simple answer. It's like, man, 
sin. It's corrupted humanity from the beginning. It's the thing that caused Cain to rise up against Abel. It is the thing that jacks everything up. But I want to press that general answer just one step further and say part of what sabotages us in this process of walking with God is maybe we're not always clear about what our relationship with God was really meant to look like from the beginning, right? Because if repetition is our friend in understanding this passage, and we did it through three different verses to stay, err, say, err on the side of staying in your circumstances, the real source of repetition in this passage is the fact that Paul uses either the verb to call or some form of it eight different times. He's exceptionally focused on the Corinthians' understanding of what it actually means to be a Christian. And he's saying if you can get this right, if you can understand the call of God on your life, it's going to go a long way to helping you resolve this tension, right? Because he wants them to understand what it looks like to follow Jesus, that Jesus is not just one of the circumstances in your life. Jesus is not just one of the dials that you turn. It's, Jesus is not just, hey, I'm feeling some anxiety. I don't know. Let me try faith. Like, I'll give the gospel six weeks, and if that doesn't work, I'll just move on to yoga, right? I'll just move on to something else. Jesus is not just one of the dials of life. Jesus is the foundation of life. That's why Dan's here singing, I will build my life upon your love. And I'm like, that's it. That's the heart. That's the call. Build your life on Jesus. Build your life on a determination to follow his call. What's God's call on our life? Well, it's very simple. You read the Gospels, and it seems to me that foundationally, the number one thing Jesus keeps asking people to do is follow me, i.e., when I break right, you break right. When I break left, you break left. When I speed up, you speed up. When I stop, you stop follow me. Jesus' call is to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, to decisively make a break with an old way of life and to live as citizens of a new and a different and eternal kingdom. And finally, the way that all that's possible is that His ultimate call in our life is to believe in Him, as He says in John's gospel, to believe in the one that the Father has sent. Right? There, there's a thread through this passage. Follow me. Repent for the kingdom is hand. Obey my commands. That sometimes we're tempted to say, hey, that's legalism. And so much of what I hope we can understand as a church is that's not legalism. That's called discipleship. Right? Jesus knows nothing about some kind of faith where we live an untransformed life but just sit back and polish our doctrinal precision. Right? We get increasingly precise in our understanding of the theological nuance, yet we look nothing more like the Son of God. He's like, no, I am calling you to something different. Look at verse 22 and 23 with me. For he who is called by the Lord as a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he is called as a free man, as Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of people." This idea of being the Lord's freedman, that is our vision for life. Because here's what Paul's getting at. There were many times where a slave might be able to purchase his or her freedom, or a master might decide to emancipate a slave. But 
almost always in that circumstance, the relationship between those two humans, between those two image bearers, did not end. It was not, oh, hey, you're free, good luck, go live life. It was now going to be much more this relationship where you are free, but I am now your patron. I am your protector. I'm going to help you get a job. I'm going to help you find a place to live. I'm going to help you get your feet under you. That's what it meant to be a freed man, to say that I have been freed. I don't belong to anybody yet. I am still reliant on this other person to shape and define my life. So for us, here's the duality of the gospel. You were freed in the moment that you became a follower of Jesus, freed from the chains of sin and death, freed from guilt and shame, yet bought with a price, and yet Jesus is still, if you will, our patron who is shaping our lives. Right? How is it that you could be called to be free, yet also be Christ's slave? Right? It's this deep paradox of the gospel. But if we can embrace that version of Jesus, you are so free, but also you belong to Christ. It becomes inevitable that when the storms of life come, we're going to dig deeper roots in Him and spend less time trying to change our circumstances. You know I believe it, but I still haven't found what my heart is looking for. It's because our hearts aren't looking for an upgrade. Our hearts are looking for a God who loves us enough that he died for us and a God who's willing to take us by the hand and not just say, I'm on the move, I hope you can keep up, but he says, I would love to hold you as I move through life. Are you on board with that kind of relationship? Father in heaven, we just want to ask that you would help us understand your call on our life, that you would help us understand what you are doing in our lives to the extent that we need to understand. And God, if there are places where you don't even intend for us to understand, would you just help us to trust you enough to follow even when we don't see the big picture? God, we live in a world that's constantly offering us one more tweak one more upgrade, one more change. And we fall for it so easily. At least I do, God. Would you help us see that you're the one we've been looking for all along? Would you help us stick with you? Just pray that over the course of the week to come for each and every single one of us. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Restoration City Church Podcast. For more information about our church or to support us financially, please visit rcc.church.